Thank you. <laughs> you know, when I was, um, when my kids were a little younger, my, my older of my two kids, when they were a little younger, I used to get the cutest cards. Daddy, I love you. You're the greatest daddy in the world. Of course, they didn't have a really big sample, but uh, I'd always get these really nice, cute cards. But now that my kids are like getting into the teen years, I start getting smart cards. And uh, so I get cards that say things like, you're the best dad I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, gee, thanks. And, or how about this one? Dear dad, you've always been like a father to me. <laughs> so uh, I think they get their sense of humor from their mother. I, I'm not totally sure, but... Now, if you just joined us this week, we're in a, we're, we're a, a three-part series, and um, we've been, the series is called One Thing. We've been trying to really focus our lives, and each week we've been talking about important aspects of having a focused life, of having a life that uh, really um, is doable. So first we talked about priorities, and Chris Trinan did an amazing job of, of taking us through that and introducing the whole series. And last week we talked about rhythm, and Kurt Buchanan, uh, he led us through that, an amazing message. Both of those are on podcast, I believe, or will be by the end of the service, so may, you know, that, they'd be great to check out both of those. And then I get to cap off this series with the last of the messages, and that's on rest. Rest. Ever since I got married, I've had a tense relationship with rumble strips. Do you know what a rumble strip is? You know, on the side of the highway, when you veer off, and then you veer back on. See, when I was single, I would hear the rumble strips and I would steer back into the lane. But now that I'm married, I have my wife with me and she reacts differently to rumble strips than I do. She immediately says, are you okay? Are you falling asleep? And then the one that really gets me should I be driving? <laughs> now, let me tell you, when I was first married, it didn't matter how tired I was. As soon as she said, should I be driving, there was absolutely no chance I was going to give up the wheel after that point. <laughs> She'd questioned my masculinity as far as I was concerned, <laughs> and I was going to drive the next 10 hours, even if it endangered my whole family. <laughs> But 17 years into marriage, I'm still a little bit stubborn, but I'm also a little more open to admitting when I'm tired and maybe when I need to take turns with the wheel. It's taken me a long time to get to that. And rumble strips are really great for driving, but there's no rumble strips that in our lives that alert us to the fact that we are sorely in need of rest in the other areas of our lives. I mean, there may, be, there may be signs, but we tend to ignore them. Signs like irritability, anxiety, lack of courage, easily giving in to the pressure of others, impatience, despair, feeling overwhelmed, unproductive work. These are all just a few of the rumble strips that I've noticed in my life that start to tell me when I'm veering off and when I need rest. 
I had a friend, mm, I want to say a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago, who actually added one more to my list and said, you just aren't as fun as you used to be. <laughs> Ouch. See, I think in our culture, in, in, in our lives, where we live, in our, our society, I think we get, we get a little bit warped when it comes to how we see our work and how we see our leisure. I think we're too dependent on our vocation sometimes for identity, and to make it even worse, we tend to spend our time in leisure in a way that isn't really refreshing. Now, maybe it's just me. If you've got this case, then feel free to listen in or tune out, but I'm going to give myself a pep talk, and hopefully it's something that'll help you as well. The first thing I want to say about this whole area of rest is this, that it's okay to rest. Some of you need to be told that. Some of you need to know it at more than just a cerebral level. You need to know it at a very deep level, that it's okay to rest. Let me give you three biblical reasons why it's okay to rest. Number one is you are not a slave. You are not a slave. Deuteronomy 5 says this. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. This is a second telling of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20 has the first telling. Deuteronomy 5 has a retelling. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So why can you rest? Well, we have this command, and then following the command, we have this reasoning. Remember that you were slaves. Keep the Sabbath. Why? What's the motivation? What's the real punch that is used in this context to say why keeping the Sabbath is so important? Why is it so important to have rest? Because you're not slaves anymore. Because you're not slaves anymore. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture from in 2008. I went to Burkina Faso, West Africa. And when I traveled there, one of the things that I got to see while I was there was a quarry where they made bricks. And uh, so I watched, you can see the feet of some of my fellow travelers up at the top of the picture. But I watched this, uh, this man work very hard to make these large bricks. Of course, you can see the bricks are uh, maybe about two and a half feet wide and about um, getting close to about a foot deep. Or, and, then, and then they went down a ways as well. Maybe there's six inches underneath. These are big bricks. And these were entirely um, cut out of a hillside with the pickaxe. How much do you think you get paid per brick? Anyone want to take a guess? How much would you want if you had to cut out a brick like this? <laughs> $100. I watched this guy work. He showed us how he did one brick. 
And he worked fast because he was being watched by all these Canadians. And uh, it was incredible how good he was with that pickaxe. It was amazing. And also, you could tell this guy was in really tip-top shape. He was, there was no, like, zero fat on this guy. He was all muscle, and uh, he just worked. By the time he was done, I figured that's harder than most Canadians work when they actually get to the gym to do one brick. He does 30 bricks in a day, and he gets 25 cents per brick. And it made me think about the Israelites in Egypt. Their whole job was to make bricks for Pharaoh. So when God took them out of Egypt, gave them a whole new life, not brick makers anymore, but now they were farmers and shepherds and tradespeople and merchants and all these different things that suddenly opened up for them. They were not just a univocation people, brick makers. They could do all these other things. God uses this as a, a tool to remember, remind them of why it's so important for there to be a day of rest in their lives. I guess I'd like to say to you something very similar. You are not the number of bricks you can produce. You say, well, I don't make bricks. No, but you get measured by your productivity, don't you? Your value to your company or your value to your family or your value. uh, Sometimes, I hate to say this, but sometimes it almost feels like it's exclusively based on what you produce. And while that's important to work, it's not the full measure of who we are. So the first thing that I think you really need to know is that you're not a slave. Your value is not entirely based on what you produce. In fact, when you encounter God, you encounter a whole new value system. So even if you have this sense sometimes that the people around you value you for what you bring to the table in certain areas, and you wonder if they would value you if you stop being able to bring that to the table, know that God has lifted you out of that measurement, and God has changed the game for how you are valued. So first thing is, you are not a slave. You are not the number of bricks you produce, and so you can rest. Number two, why can you rest? Because it was designed for you. Now, I wrote this originally, and I had a different way of saying this point. I said, you were designed for it. And then I realized that that's unbiblical. Let me read it to you. Mark 2, 23 to 27. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did and what he and his compan- when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the ones who were accusing them of violating the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man not man, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So you see where I had my point wrong. 
You were not designed for rest. Rest was designed for you. It was God's idea. It was God's design. It's actually how you work best. If you work six days and you rest one day, you're actually operating according to the owner's manual. Right? Your warranty should be fine. Right? You don't have to worry. That's how you were made to go. And, and this is not a foreign concept. This is not something that people in our culture don't understand. You know, you can read all these different leadership books on, on, on these principles and stuff like that. I remember reading, reading uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and one of the habits in there is sharpen the saw. It's the whole concept that if you're going to cut down a lot of trees, every now and again you need to stop and sharpen your saw so you can continue to be effective. In fact, maybe to be even more effective. Um, but this is something that's, that's understood in our culture to some degree, is that, well, in order to be, continue to be productive, we need to stop and sharpen the saw or sharpen the axe. But I love what it said here. It says that this... Now, you could still go to the wrong place with that. You could still go to the place where you say, okay, right, we should give people time off so they can be, make more bricks. Right? But you have to remember our last point. You're not a slave. You're not about your, your, your productivity does not define your identity. So, it, so I could see some managers and some businesses saying, oh, if I give them time off, we'll get more done. I'm sold. Give people time off. Let's do it. But they need to have the full understanding, and that is the fact that uh, people's worth is not defined by their productivity. So here's the last one. You can rest because you are called to imitate a God who rested. This one is particularly for people who follow Jesus. And it's very, I would say it's very unique. Uh, maybe people in the culture wouldn't necessarily say this one, but we would say this as, as believers. We're called to imitate a God who rested. Exodus 20, this is the first telling of the, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Sounds familiar. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your sons or daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in this case, this telling of the law, same command, but at the end of it, a different reason. A different motivating tagline. And the tagline here is that the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh he rested as an example for us. It made me think a little bit. The first day of humanity was a rest day. I mean, man was kind, was created on the seventh day. So he showed up on a day off. Showed up on the rest day. Now, that doesn't mean that our lives are all about rest. In fact, God immediately assigned him work, right? Tend the garden, name the animals. He had stuff to do. So work is not what we're fighting against. We're not here to say work is bad. Actually, work is good and rest is good. The problem is that sometimes we only rest or we only work, and that's bad. But the first day of humanity was a rest day. It was a Sabbath. And God rested. 
Now you say, well, God rested. Does God get tired? No. God doesn't get tired. God's work doesn't wear God out. God speaks and things become. So God doesn't get tired. It's not that he is exhausted or that he needs to rest. But he sets an example for us that we're called to follow, to be like God. So you think of God and all that he can accomplish in six days and, and, and then takes a day that's not about accomplishment, not about doing. And then you look at us and we can accomplish so much less and, and yet we're called to as well to follow that identity. So those are three reasons why you need to rest, but I'm gonna, I wanna go a little bit further because how do we apply this to our lives? How do we apply some of these things? I was reading um, a little excerpt from a book and it was talking about, it's actually one of the professors from the University of Ottawa. I forgot his name now, but I was reading his book and he was talking about how Christians do leisure badly and some of the ways we do leisure badly. And out of that, I, I compiled a bit of a list of ways I thought we could upgrade our rest, make it better. And so let me just give you, a, I, I hope this is practical and you'll, you'll grab at least one thing out of here that you can take home with you. If you want to upgrade your rest, if you, you find that the rest that you do have doesn't actually replenish you, doesn't refresh you in some ways, let me give you a few ideas. First one is, I would encourage you to consume less goods and services that distract us from God and his creation. Ultimately, I think you're going to find your best rest in relationship with God and in relationship with his creation. But we're really tempted when it comes to taking time to rest to make it all about um, consuming things. Uh, We live in a materialistic society. Materialism is, we sort of grow up with it. We're trained by it. We have messages coming to us all the time saying, basically the premise of the message is, this is a message about happiness. First, you need to know how unhappy you are, (laughs) and then if you buy our product, you will be happy like the people in our video. If we push back against that and we begin to consume less goods and services, I think that that might help us to really focus in on, on God and his creation. Almost everything we do in the area of rest has got some chemical component in our brains. Um... Some people really get the chemicals in their brains, the happy chemicals going when they go to the mall. Um, I won't point any fingers. You know who you are. But feel free to nudge your neighbor if you are sitting beside them. <laughs> the only thing is we buy and then later we have buyer's remorse. The high comes and then the high goes and the bills come and you go lower. <laughs> I, th- I think a park would not- might be a better choice than a mall, but... I think it's an encourage. I think encourage that the simpler you can do, uh, and the less you need to refresh yourself based on consuming things. I think that's better. Here's another upgrade: unbusy your leisure by simplifying it. Think about how long it takes you to prepare for a trip away. If it takes you a week to pack the camper, and you're going away for two days. Maybe the ratio is out of whack. Maybe you need to simplify. 
I've noticed this in our lives that sometimes we plan these big vacations and it's like, it's so much prep to do the vacation and then it's so much prep when you come back to undo the vacation. And the vacation itself, it, it's, a, it's a net loss in the, end of the, end of the thing, in the end. So unbusy your leisure by simplifying it. Maybe you just need to say, we're, we're gonna do less. We're gonna, we're gonna just go and be. It doesn't, we don't have to jam pack the schedule. I'm particularly guilty of, of doing that. But I think that's one way that we could upgrade our rest. How about this one? Reduce overstimulation from the entertainment culture. I mean, the big stat people used to talk about 20 years ago was the average person watches five hours of TV a day. That was the big stat. And now, that's really rare because now we do 10 hours of YouTube instead (laughs) or 10 hours of video games or uh, Netflix. Remember when you had to wait a week? Do you remember that? Some of you are that old. You had to wait a week. And your show would only come on a certain night. You actually had to be home to watch it. You could only consume those shows one a week, an hour a week. Talk about poverty. (laughs) Now, thanks to Netflix, we can spend weeks without seeing our friends and family. We can stumble out talking like Downton Abbey. (laughs) I've emerged. I'm alive. Life has changed. But something hasn't changed in that we're consuming an awful lot of entertainment. And we're overstimulated. My mom, when I was a kid, my mom had to cut us off from watching WWF wrestling. She was convinced that we were different after watching it. There were only six boys in the house. I don't know where she got her facts from, really. <laughs> she said there was a change, and we didn't notice it. The holes in the walls, were, we thought, were pretty constant. How about this one? Replace competitive with cooperative activities. This is an ouch for me. I love competitive activities. I don't always love the results, though. This is the second church I've served in, And this isn't the reason why I left the other church, but I'll tell you the story. I was serving in this church, and the board members of the church at a certain season happened to be very young. We were all in our 20s and 30s, most of us, which is sort of strange, but it just happened to be a season we were in. And so we would get together and play Risk, the board game. Anyone ever played Risk? You know what I'm talking about? It's about world domination. That's what Christians love to play. And so we would... We'd set up our armies and roll the dice and try to kill each other. And I only know one way to play risk, and that's all out. I either am the first person out of the game or I win. That's the only way. I'm never like halfway through the game. It's like I just, there's a moment and I just go cutthroat and just try to take out one and then the other and cash in their cards. It's a funny game. Anyhow, that's the only way I know how to play. And... Uh, so some nights, I'd be the first one out. I'd go upstairs and, you know, hang out or whatever while the guys finish the game. Or 
some nights I'd win. And you know, when you win, you get a boost of testosterone. I'd feel so good until I got home. And then I couldn't sleep. Because I think about all the different guys that I loved and worked with and cared about and how there's hurt feelings now (laughs) and how (laughs) we all really got to know each other's true inner personalities. (laughs) We didn't like it. (laughs) It often was one of those things where it's just like, you know what? We need to just quit playing this game. We need to quit. You know, my testosterone goes up when I win. It goes down when I lose and hurt feelings abounded. Anyhow, I'm not saying you can't play competitive things, but maybe an upgrade would be to do some things that are just about relationship, where there are no losers. I'm still going to play competitive games, but I could upgrade some of my leisure. How about this one? Replace organized play with unstructured play. Oh, man, this one gets me. I was playing Lego with one of my kids when they were younger. And I was like, okay, let's build a spaceship or a house or, you know, the things you... No, Dad, those are special Legos. Special Legos? Well, yeah, but you can build anything. No, no, no. That's my Ninjago set. I was like, what? No, those are special. You you make ninjas with them, and they have special powers. And I was like, okay, well, I'll make a ninja, and we can fight. No, that's not the power that that ninja has. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There's a whole script for how to play with Legos. I was like, I was totally irritated. I was like, seeing my son, thinking about how imaginative he is in any other context, and I was like, who ruined Lego? I was mad. I was ripped off. I just thought, this is, he should be free to think out of the box with all these blocks. But instead, he was very scripted in his play and wanted me to be scripted too. And I, sometimes we do that with our leisure, don't we? If this is what we're going to do, we're all going to do this, (laughs) exactly this, and there maybe isn't the freedom to do unstructured play. I think that's a great way to upgrade our leisure. How about this one? Replace spectating with participating. Nothing against being a Warriors fan or a Rough Riders fan and getting season tickets, but there probably is a few people with season tickets that would be helped if they got on the field for a few minutes or on the ice for a quick skate around. I know I like spectating. I like watching games. But at the same time, if I'm going to refresh myself, I have to move a bit. That's what's going to really help me. Here's the last one. How about going screen free for a set period of time? Put your phone away for an hour. Just put it in a drawer somewhere. And, and resolve not to answer, no matter how much it buzzes. How about just saying screen-free evening? This is, we're not going to do anything that requires, no TV, no internet, no video games. We're just going to... Maybe the time period you need to adopt is bigger than that. Maybe you need to adopt the whole day. Maybe you're regular. I know some parents that they do screen-free all Sunday. Maybe to really detox, to get a rest, you need to do a week. Or maybe because it's summer, you'll adopt a month. Or maybe a screen-free summer. Now, at some point, you checked out on me. 
<laughs> I know you did. So this would be my question to bring you back in. What, which, amount, which amount would be a step of real change for you? Which amount of screen-free time would be a step of real change for you? Upgrade your rest. All right, let me move to my final thing I really want to talk about today. The rest we learn about in the Bible is so much more than just how you do your day off or how you spend your annual vacation. It's, the, it's how you do all of life, even your work. What? Even your work? Work, rest? It seems like we're getting confused, which is which. But let me read you what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You're going to give me rest. That's awesome, because I don't want to work. I want rest. So take my yoke upon you. What? Jesus, what are you doing? You're changing the game. You said that I was weary and burdened, and so that you were going to give me rest, and now you say, take my yoke upon you, which in the Old Testament, that idea in the Bible, yoke was like a harness to work. Like two animals would get harnessed together by a yoke, and then they would pull a cart. So is Jesus pulling a fast one on people? You need rest? Come here, come here. I'll give you rest. Here, work. What's going on here? Let's read the rest of it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest, we might wonder, really? Can such a simple invitation be that powerful? My burdens are so complex, they're so heavy, it just seems like the answer that he's offering is, is too simple. It seems trite, almost naive to say, just come, bring your burdens, and I'll, I'll give you rest. It seems like what he's offering is too simple. I was thinking about it this way. Imagine that you're going to have a, that you you're talking with a couple friends and you say, "Man, I need to unclutter my house. It is just like we have too much stuff, and um, we need to have a garage sale." The only thing is, a garage sale would be a ton of work because I I don't even know where to start. And let's say both your buddies say, "Hey, we'll help you. We'll help you do a garage sale." Now let's say. You know, you know these guys really well. You know them really, really well. And you know that when the one guy says, I will help you, what he means is, on the day of the garage sale, I'll show up in the middle of the day, see how you're doing, and if you need me, I'll stick around and talk to people who are buying stuff. But you know that the other friend, when they say, I will help you, you know that they mean... I will come to your house the day before and I will drag stuff out of your crawl space until my knees bleed. I will carry it up the stairs no matter what it is, even that weight set you bought and never used. I'll carry it up the stairs. I'll get it into your yard. I will buy, I'll go to the store. I'll buy price stickers. I'll help you price things. I'll help you decide what stuff you should keep and what stuff you should get rid of. I will help you release your sticky fingers off things that you're nostalgic about, but they're junk. 
I'll help you. I'll be there early in the morning when the sale starts. I'll help barter with people, get the best prices. And when it's all over, you can use my truck. In fact, I'll haul the stuff away to the dump that we didn't get sold. So, they both say, I will help you. In that moment, your decision on whether or not you're going to have a garage sale or not is much more highly dependent on one of your friends than the other. And I think that's the power of what Jesus is saying here. The power in Jesus' promise is not the words of the promise. The power in Jesus' promise is in the person who makes the promise. What he is like. So when he says simply, come to me all you who are weary of burden, I will give you rest. Well, if someone else was making that promise, we might say, uh-uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You don't know how burdened I am. You don't know how deeply I need rest. You don't know what kind of mess I'm in. You don't know how my life has become a train wreck and unmanageable. I'm at the edge of tears almost every moment of the day. You don't even get it. When you say, come and I'll help you, be, I'll help you with this rest thing, you don't even understand it. But when Jesus says it, it's a whole different thing. Because the power of the promise is in the person who makes it. And the rest that comes from the promise depends on our trust in the person who makes the promise. See, it's about faith. It's about trusting God in what he's promised. I want to read to you just a little clip. This is a, um, or a little blurb here from a man named Paul Tripp, who's a father. He says, our children were too young to grasp the abstract, strategic, and often theological purposes underlying our instructions. Even if I explained everything in an age-appropriate way as, as best I could, they would still have no actual understanding. They just did not yet have the categories or the capacity to grasp the parental logic behind the plan or command. So I did the same thing again and again. I would kneel down in front of them at eye level and say, please look at daddy's face. Do you know how much I love you? Do you know that your daddy is not a mean, bad man? Do you know that I would never ask you to do anything that would hurt you or make you sick? I'm so sorry that you can't understand why daddy is asking you to do this. I wish I could explain it to you, but you're too young to understand. So I'm going to ask you to do something. Trust Daddy. When you walk down the hallway to do what Daddy has asked you to do, say to yourself, my Daddy loves me. My Daddy would never ask me to do something bad. I'm going to trust my Daddy and stop trying to be the Daddy of my Daddy. God does the same thing with you over and over again. He meets you in one of the difficult hallways of your life, kneels down before you in condescending love, and asks you to trust his loving and wise rule, even though you don't have a clue what he is doing. He knows there are many times when your life doesn't look like there's anyone ruling it, let alone someone wise and good. He knows there will be time when you will wish you could be the author of your own story, he knows at times you will be overwhelmed by what is on your plate. He knows that his plan will confuse and confound you, 
And he knows that real rest cannot be found in understanding because like my children, there are things as a limited human being you simply do not have the capacity to understand. Real rest is found in trusting the person who's in control of the things you do not understand. Real rest, let me read that again. Real rest is found in trusting the person who's control, in control of the things you do not understand. You know, when I'm dealing in my own life with some of the rumble strip signs that I need rest, one of the things that helps me the most is to act with faith about who God is in my life. So for example, if I can't sleep at night because I've got too much anxiety, because I'm worrying about tomorrow or, or the next day or some decision I have to make or some conflict that needs to be resolved or, or something like that. You know, I have a new phrase. This is the one I've, been, I've used quite recently, actually. I just say, sleep is an act of faith. Now, what am I saying to myself? I'm saying, I don't have to be in control because God is. See, God is always working. Now, I know that might sound strange. Didn't he take every seventh day off? Is there actually days where you can't get a hold of him? No, God is, God is in control. It doesn't require effort, really, from him. He speaks and things change. In fact, he can do more with a spoken word than we can do in a lifetime of activity. But my natural tendency is to want to control my life, to write the story of my life, to be the author of my own story, actually to be the hero of my own story. And so by my effort, by my grunting and, 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 uh, and, and just keeping going and, and never stopping, make the whole thing happen. But rest, it really is like an act of resistance against that. That's what a Sabbath really is. It's rebellion against the sinful structure of the world around us. It flies in the face of you got to keep being productive to prove you're worthy. It just says, no. I'm not in charge. God's in control. Even though my circumstances don't always make sense, I trust him that he has a plan. And so I can sleep. Sleep is an act of faith. I'm checking out. I'm hitting the punch clock because there's still somebody on duty. We find in a lot of the different places in the New Testament that one of the main reasons why people didn't enter into God's rest was because of unbelief. They didn't actually experience the rest of God that he had planned for them. Remember, this is something that God designed for our good. 
But they didn't enter into it because of a lack of faith, because they had to keep holding on to the reins of their own life, and they could never relinquish them and allow God to take them. And so they continued in anxiety, nervousness. I have to always be on the ball. I have to always be in charge. I have to always control things. I have to manipulate things to make them go the way I need them to go. I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to. It's a pretty good way to run your life right down. But the Bible also tells us about how sweet it is when people allow God to be in charge of those things and they start to experience that incredible rest that he has in mind for them. Let me read to you out of Psalm 62. It says, No, I'll start with that. Our burdened souls only truly find rest in one place. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So my prayer for you would be this. First, that you would know that you can rest. You'd clearly understand that you were meant for it. Actually, it was meant for you. That you would throw off the slavery of our culture that says you are just a measurement of how many bricks you produce in whatever area you serve. You are loved by God. You have far more worth than that. That you begin to imitate your father. Oh, on Father's Day, this is so important. You'd imitate your father, your better father. Man, when my kids imitate me, and they imitate the stuff I do decently good, I'm happy. When they imitate me and it's all my flaws, I cringe. With God, there's no problem. You can imitate everything he does. His character is perfect. So on Father's Day, one of my biggest wishes for you is you'd, be, you'd, you'd imitate your heavenly father. You'd imitate your better father. You'd love your earthly father. You'd honor your earthly father, boy. It's a great day to imitate your better father. And that you relinquish all those things that you can't control and that you can't understand. They say, Lord, I don't know the plan that, I don't know, your plans are beyond tracing out, so I don't even know, I can't do it. So, I'm not gonna try to be the daddy of the daddy I'm not going to try to control you. I'm going to actually relinquish my control with the people around me. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to rest. Let's stand. Let's just pray together. Lord, you know how tired our fingers are from clutching on to things that we need to let go of. You know how drained we are trying to manipulate our world. 
And you know how confused we are trying to understand what's going on in our lives. And you see us in our weariness, you see us in our burdened state, and you say, come. It's a simple invitation, come. You who are weary, and I will give you rest.